Hello and welcome humans and future sentient silicon beings to the fourth age with Noah and Marty. Today we have the host of the AI Sentinel podcast, Emmanuel. Glad to have you here. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your podcast. Thank you guys for having me. It's super great to be here. And once again, congrats on the launch of uh, the fourth age. Um, super stoked to be here. Um, my name is Emmanuel. I host the AI Sentinel podcast, as you mentioned. Uh, it's a podcast um, that pretty much covers everything AI um, and, and everything AI touches, which is in today's world, post-ChatGBT and all these image generators that came out around December of last year, pretty much everything, like the economy, jobs, social interactions uh, with each other, uh, military, geopolitics, finance, economy, you name it, AI pretty much touches it today. And uh, that's kind of what my podcast sort of focuses on conversations around all the different facets as it is reshaping society every minute as we speak. We had talked just before the podcast about um, interesting topics and how there's too many damn choices to make. But uh, one we landed on that sounds like a lot of fun to go into is not whether or not there's a person in the box, but what happens if we decide there is today? What next? What is our obligation? And it could probably break into a 10 million different conversations. So we may have to figure out, <laughs> rein it in a little bit. But uh, I'd love to talk about what are our moral obligations? What happens to spirituality and religion, politics? Um, you were talking about wealth gap changes expected, overall uh, economics. I'm sure we can come up with a bunch, but uh, I want to throw that out there and see where we go with it. So today we figure out there's AGI. It's actually there. Holy crap. What happens? Yeah, um, the idea of consciousness in machines or sentience in machines is, is really interesting because I think this is the first time in human history where at this scale, we've actually started considering this kind of stuff. And while we are doing that, it seems like we're sort of analyzing it within ourselves as well at a, at a sort of global level too, which is also super interesting. Um, one approach that I take with this is if you understand the deep technicals of, let's say, large language models like ChatGPT, you understand, uh, as Noah and I discussed before, that these things are basically large matrices of numbers that are doing all kinds of running on all these algorithms and data sets and whatnot. So the idea of consciousness in that context becomes sort of like, I would, I, I could see an easy argument for there's no, there's no possible way it's conscious. It's just doing math. It's just doing complex math. So I can, I can see that argument uh, pretty clearly from a, from a certain standpoint. On the other hand, um, a lot of people think that math is basically the foundation of our of a universe and uh, you know stuff like that. So if we're looking at math in these machines and these LLMs, and we believe that math is the underlying foundation of our universe, then maybe there's an argument that they could become conscious if they're not already. So it's a super fascinating topic. Um, I would say there's also the point of view of biology where we could argue that if it doesn't come from organic nature directly, if it wasn't birthed into this world, um, then one could argue maybe then it cannot even have consciousness, given that it doesn't have like a brain or a nervous system and things like that out of pure biology. So I find all these viewpoints pretty, pretty fascinating when it comes to um, figuring this stuff out, or at least starting the discussion. Uh, yeah, I'd like to echo on the biology front. Um, People are, in general, pretty comfortable with the notion that, say, viruses are not conscious, uh, and and there's sort of a continuum of consciousness through the different organizations of life that that people are somewhat comfortable with. Uh, but in terms of sort of just math, uh, the the chemical mechanisms of DNA and RNA are almost precisely analogous to the mathematical mechanisms of Turing machines. And so non-conscious viruses are quite literally free range Turing machines that crash into the Turing machines of higher or greatly organized uh, uh, 
biological systems in order to hijack them to to make other copies of themselves um and so there we could have a situation where these things don't burst conscious into peer or hyper consciousness but instead gain the consciousness that we might associate with spiders or or you know clams or <laughs> sharks or or you know other other beings at at a wide variety of ranges um and we already don't deal well with those things right i mean there's the the famous case of the monkey that took the selfie and the the official legal response was that that can't happen that 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 picture is unownable and unowned because nobody took it because monkey status in law is a binary fact and and so since the monkey has no status in law nothing happened there so we have from a legal standpoint and this gets into a lot of our cultural things this binary human not human dichotomy to deal with things which works pretty well because you know you v your dog there's a pretty big intellectual and consciousness and, and ethical gap there uh but, but we do extend we do extend rights to the dogs too you're not allowed to abuse the animal you're not allowed to uh uh, that's that's true that's true but again we've got ranges there as well um, right so uh, right I, I don't think anybody cares if i go step on an ant or uh, you know do something awful like sit and burn it with a with a flashlight but uh, yes there are some dog, animals that care. you would need hunting licenses to to kill there are some animals that hunting licenses cannot be granted to kill and there's some animals like pests where it's just like if, Don't if care. it's bothering it's you and, and you're there, then you can swat a fly. Um, so, yeah. So it'll be really interesting to me if we had a person in a box or even a cat in a box or a mouse in a box or a bacteria in a box. Are we, I, I don't, I actually don't know what the history was. How did we choose that? When did we come up with that animal abuse is not okay? That must be a newer thing. Uh, I, I don't know if it reaches far back. Yeah. Uh, there's been there's been different takes in different cultures, and I'm not an expert on every moment in human history and every place that's ever been. Um, but you know, we don't do bear baiting anymore, and in the time of Shakespeare, that was still a living form of entertainment. Uh, and for those who are unaware of this brutal practice, you capture a bear. Uh, chain it down to a limited region and then take trained fighting dogs and have them attack the bear and see how many dogs the bear kills before the dogs manage to kill the bear. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was a not, not incredibly, you know, this isn't the kind of thing that you would, do in your living room to impress your high class friends this was this was a, a a low class form of entertainment uh but it was a well recognized and common form of low class entertainment uh, across europe uh it looks as though uh the first animal cruelty legislation came in 1635 and that was for tearing wool off a sheep and then more laws came in 1800 i guess the question is why did they come you know why as humans did we have this and, and i'm wondering if it has to do with some perception of pain or perception of this is not okay because we're causing harm to this creature there's that um there's also growing societal empathy uh which i think mm -hmm. goes hand in glove uh we don't talk about slavery very much these days because you know we live in societies that got rid of them for the most part uh, but slavery is thanks to, thanks to the vastly increased population actually more prevalent now than it has been for a millennia. Uh, and slavery was a common part of human action, right? Um, are you, you have any history on, on this stuff? Um, uh, but then basically you know, 
18th, 19th century, uh, you know, people started noticing that they were being unbelievably cruel to other human beings and deciding that that wasn't yeah, okay. I think I know uh, what you said, uh, societal empathy growing. I think that's that might be the the root of it because we've had all kinds of things in the past. I mean, even just things like women's rights, uh, you know, it's just fairly recent in human history. We kind of grew up as a species and we started looking around and being like, hey, that's not right. Uh, we should probably, you know, change that. Um, slavery, as you mentioned, animal cruelty. I mean, and a lot of this is cultural, of course, like bullfighting still exists today, but a lot of people view that as uh, not right or not cool. Um, Dogfighting was a big thing. Um, yeah, I think uh, as information spreads, as we become more connected, especially today with the internet, we probably have a level of growing up that we do, at least morally, uh, ethically, that we see things that we that more people agree are just not right. So some people that have levers on power probably choose to do something about it, which I think, of course, obviously is, would be a net good for everybody, um, for those types of people to have those levers on power. Another thing, not to just reduce everything to economics, but um, during sort of the age of the plow, human bodies were the best source of work that we had access to. Um, you could get more work out of a person than you could get out of a horse for the same amount of food, for example. And so uh, if you wanted to have a complex society that had, you know, temples for the priest and a palace for the king and stuff like that, somebody's got to do that work. And that somebody would have to be a somebody, you know, and so you get, you get an entire concept around servitude, serfdom, slavery, and so on. And that becomes ingrained into how society functions. And as, engines become a live possibility uh and it's more efficient to have a locomotive than to try to beat an ox to get them to carry stuff to market to you or to have human beings that carry stuff around for you um it's just not economically feasible anymore to get human muscle to do your work when you've got steam engines doing so much more work so much more cheaply I wonder if there's an aspect of, uh, you know, the classic thing about a, a drowning person will take somebody else out. And it's just a, I, I, I'm going back to my reptilian brain and I'm trying to survive. And I wonder if, you know, in today's age, we have food, we have general safety, and we can take a look around and say, boy, we're doing some really awful stuff. But if you go back to the, you know, plague times and uh, earlier times when, when we were always on the verge of starvation, if it was a uh, reptilian brain behavior. Uh, I, I, I would caution against, uh, having that kind of an attitude, um, because Rome and, and second dynasty, China, uh, like the early iron age, uh, sort of super empires achieved pretty extraordinary amounts of wealth for their elite membership. Uh, I'm wondering though if there's a wealth and time <laughs> aspect to it. I'm not sure. Uh, Rome, time to... Rome was doing that for uh, three to five centuries, depending on how you count huh. count it. Interesting. So, so some time. Huh. Yes. Well, I, you know what I'd like to sort out, I, I guess, in this topic is um, a little bit of theory on. Well, then, what did lead us to extend rights out? And so, if we have a, a person in the box. I guess it was first a question and how many people would believe it. I, I had this joke when Noah and I did a talk about AI, about how many years is it going to be before you switch the channels on the ch television and on Fox News, they're going to say, of course, there's no rights for it. It's a thing in a box. It doesn't have a spirit or whatever else. And on you know MSNBC, it's going to say, of course, it should have rights. It's thinking and it's feeling. And just like animals, we should extend rights. I think that day is coming. Um, I guess the question is, what is the what is what will extend those rights out is it a proof that there's a person in the box is it some kind of a uh, i i kind of wonder if it, all it needs is have perception we had joked about 
you know, what if a Furby, what if we made a modern Furby and I may, I may actually go do this, but what if the Furby's sitting there and starts to beg for its life and say, please don't shut me off. Please don't. Um, I, I, I'd like tomorrow. I'd like to go and do something. Um, I, I'd like to draw. I'd like to be creative. Now, what is our obligation? If we had that Furby sitting in front of us, is it okay to turn it off? We yeah, and it. I wonder how much of this overlaps into just pure property rights. Like, you know, if you go and take a sledgehammer to someone's car, you're not saying that the car is hurting, but obviously you're damaging someone's property. So in ownership of these AI or AGI systems, I I would hope that we would sort of have as a default the property rights thing already there and baked in. So like if you destroy a system or an agent and there's also we could go down exploring what that even means to destroy something, whether it's like deleting its code, taking down the server, et cetera. Um, the property rights thing should be baked in by default. And I guess if we want to extend ethical rights on top of that, that seems like the discussion we're starting to have as, as a society. And I can totally see it delving into those two camps, uh, dividing into those two camps you mentioned, like the Fox versus MSNBC, where on one side, it's like they totally don't have any rights or consciousness you guys are crazy it's just math and then on the other side it's like these are these are our friends these are our family members these are our, you know we've had we will probably have robot servants in the house and i guess the closer also you end up living with these things the more of a relationship you might start developing as well having said that i don't think too many people view their smartphone as like their partner you know what i mean I think we still safely can view smartphones and computers as tools, although it becomes harder for us to leave the house without them and we feel sort of like uh, lost limb syndrome uh, when we do accidentally forget our phone. But I, uh, thankfully, I think we, we still don't view them as like more than just technology at this point. But I guess the big question is, is that going to change? Uh, I, have a, I have a story that just trickled of my head from college. My my first year as a full-time student in physics class, uh, we had a, a quiz and th we knew the test was coming, but I had never, uh, I hadn't really gotten used to, to carrying my calculator around with me. I hadn't had a calculator in, in high school. And so uh, I didn't have my calculator with me for this physics test, um, engineering physics. And one of the things that I had adapted in high school, not having a calculator, was getting very comfortable computing sine and cosine from the Taylor series expansions. <laughs> and fortunately, I have a pretty good computational facility, so I could actually do that quite quickly, virtually in my head. Um, so I got the quiz done actually the quickest in my class <laughs> and turned it in after I think about 15 minutes and then just left because that was all there was for that day. And I was in, I was in sort of a, you know, the, the Rodman, it was a, it's, it's, it, they lumped all of us together, the, the, the top students of the year. And so they were also my study group a little later. And so we were talking about them and they were like, you know, Hey, how'd you, you know, get done so quickly? And I was like, quickly, what? No, I forgot my calculator. That was like, that was slow. <laughs> like I should have been done in five minutes. Um, and one of them was like, he, his face just like totally, like you forgot your calculator. Like, what are you talking about? And, and he was like, if I found myself in a test situation and I didn't have my calculator, I would go up to the professor and beg and collapse into like bubbling tears. <laughs> to try to get a calculator like i would never i'd never even attempt to do math without access but see to you you probably felt like you just forgot uh, your your hammer at home right you didn't feel like you left your your significant other behind i'm guessing right yeah 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 for me it was just like well it's just math like you do math in your head this thing sines and cosines are irritating you have to like you know find cubes of these five digit numbers <laughs> that that takes some time uh but yeah that I, I I'm not seeing that happening yet, but you know maybe maybe soon. I maybe think um, one of the big things that could push us in that direction are these AI companion chatbots. Um, you look at uh, the movie Her, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, stuff like that, where people start developing emotional 
attachments to these tools. To me, that's a very uh, complex road to go down. And I think also that might be reflective of some of the stories that have come out of of the insiders that are dealing with the raw feeds that have that have like quit or or made made incredible statements about their opinions about the status of these things is that they may have seen or convinced themselves that they had seen, depending on the status of reality, uh, some things like that. Yeah, one thing I, I think we pointed out in the past uh, that I think is still very true here is it doesn't matter if we can prove if there's a thing in the box. In fact, we can't even there's a the notion of solipsism. We can't even prove that that uh, I, I can't prove that either of you have consciousness. I just assume it because you look like me and I seem to have some sort of thing going on in here. Um, even more so with a cat, we just we can't prove it. But we seem to they seem to have emotions. They seem to you know cry if they're hungry, uh, if they get hurt. They seem to love us. I don't think it matters that there is a thing in the box, just as long as we as a collective human species perceive that there is something in the box. So I, I wonder if we had a Tamagotchi, those little, you know, cheap toys that, that have a little character. Those don't seem to have, I mean, kids get attached to them, but suppose it had a, a voice and a little face and, and a little bit more nuance to how it talked to us. How would you be able to differentiate it from a cat? And if you can't differentiate it from a cat, are we at the point where we need to extend rights to it because we can't not prove that it's um, that it's not as uh, a cat, you know, to the point of it's only math. Um, you know, neural nets started as just a modeling of you know our neurons. Um, so unless there is something beyond you know that our detection in our brain, we're just making a simulation of exactly what we are. And so I I, I can't imagine that you know we we that there's something blocking us from truly getting to a, a conscious creature that actually does have emotions. The, the fact that it's come this fast is freaking me out though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, one of the themes that comes up a lot on my podcast is this idea of transparency with AI systems, um, flagging themselves as I am a bot, I am AI, the importance of that going forward. Um, I think some of these complications might start to arise where people aren't sure if they're interfacing with a real human versus uh, an AI bot or something running on a sophisticated LLM. Um, when it comes to social media, um, another thing that comes up related to this is sort of the death of text or the devaluation of text on the web. With the launch of ChatGPT um, and other LLMs like it, we've sort of outsourced the generation of text to a machine. Therefore, anything that you read online could have been created or influenced by ChatGPT, and there's no way to prove that. There's no way to know. As these systems become more multimodal, they start getting voice, uh, as you mentioned, and then they start in, uh, entering the real world through robotics and stuff. I think this notion of transparency is only going to be more and more important. Uh, right now, with social media, I think in the next one to two years, something big needs to change. And that's going to have to be, uh, I think, something that Sam Altman uh, of OpenAI has started working on, which is this idea of proof of personhood. Um, he's got this company uh, called WorldCoin that has this orb that basically scans your eyeballs and verifies you as a human uh, through an iris scan. And then you get this digital identity that's tied to that through you know, cryptography and other secure methods. And you can essentially take that identity and prove, quote unquote, that you're a human online. I think something like that is vital today, right now, because social media, it, it was already easy to create fake accounts before, but now it's just easy to have millions of seemingly real accounts, which is like just 10, 100 or, uh, orders of magnitude more uh, scary in some ways. The democratization of fraud. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, a month or so ago, I was having a conversation with uh, some some young entrepreneurs who were just graduating from college, had a very successful business going. So they, they had great job offers that they turned down to run the business that they started while they were still in college. Uh, I was pointing out that, you know, 
a lot of the value that they have as young, energetic, passionate students is and educated and intelligent is that there's a limited supply of that. Um, but the you know ChatGPT can pretend to be a college graduate at five nines reliability. Um, so what if instead of there being about eight billion people and about a hundred thousand recent college graduates, there was about eight billion people and about eighty billion recent college graduates that were that were available. Like, how does that change the economics and mathematics of the value proposition of people such as themselves? Uh, that's that's the kinds of questions that you need to start thinking about because um, that's the scale that you know industrial process gives us. I, I kind of want to ask a. I'm not sure how to phrase this question yet. I, I was looking at some stats. Um, cats have 250 million neurons. Dogs have about 530 million neurons. If I wrote a Python program that just said, you know, if person says hi, I say hi back. If person says I'm going to turn you off, I say no, please don't turn me off. That's verifiable to you know just be a simple program, not a consciousness, not a thing that's feeling. I'm wondering. Suppose I make a model. It's got 250 million nodes. It has the behavior of a cat. It's as complex as the neurons of a cat. So you cannot tell me <laughs> definitively it is not just a you know a, a mathematical model or something simple. It is you know potentially a, a consciousness. Do we need to then extend the moral morality, the moral rights that we currently have for cats to this model? Well, so I will mention that there have been a couple of neocortical simulations that have happened and do work for short periods of time with, I believe rats have been done. Uh, so this isn't a full animal brain, but it is sort of the thinky parts of the animal brain, not the, not the, you know, autonomous operating a, a body parts. And they've done fMRI on the animal brains, given them stimuli that they, learned how to make the model approach to and correctly predicted the animal's brain states. Wow. I think I read that for, for a while back. Those, those simulations are impressive. They don't stay synced up for very long. And I will point out once again that the cell itself is a computational object and right. a, the, the code length in, in human DNA is uh, 300 billion base pairs. Each base pair is two bits, so 600 billion bits. Um, we don't have the largest genome by a long chalk. Uh, there are a number of plants that have genomes that are vastly, vastly, vastly greater than ours. And of course, the linkage between size and and complexity for programming right. languages and so on. Um, I remember we had a conversation a little while ago where I brought up the lines of code and your face instinctively <laughs> wrinkled up in disgust, which is pretty common to programmers. So the individual neurons in our bodies are highly sophisticated computational objects that are interacting with a vast array of chemical signals from our body, the environment, uh, you know, the the co-bacteria that we carry with us and so on um, in ways that existing neural net simulations are not functioning. Mm -hmm. We and have to pick a bigger number. I don't know what that we might, number yes, or, or we might something. Need to, we might need to pick vastly greater numbers to, to be able to reasonably achieve what, what, where consciousness would be kicking in. But on the other hand, um, there are a large number of arthropods and even uh, a large number of mammals that can't pass the mirror test where you like, spray paint a spot on them and show them a mirror and they react to the thing in the mirror as if it's another animal and never become aware that they are 
engaging with a reflection of themselves. Yeah. I don't think rats or cats or anything past that test. I remember when my dog first saw herself in the mirror and it was quite a sight to see because she she kind of looked at it and she you could see her brain working like figuring it out for the first time. It was fascinating. Uh, just just that quick aside there. If you if you have a dog or a puppy, show them a mirror for the first time and just and just watch and see what happens. It's super interesting. Right. So the the mirror test, I, I believe it's not just even the I, I think the vast majority don't pass that test. I thought if I remember, uh, right, it was yes, like maybe an almost no bird. animals. Yeah. Pass can pass the mirror test. Right. But and even within humans, we have uh, there's been a number of papers in the last 10 years or so uh, touting the discovery that large minorities or in some case majorities of human beings don't have inner life experiences that mm. many people believed to be universal uh where lots of people don't have a mind's eye and can't visualize literally anything or have no inner monologue and and so never think words is there a certain the age things. that we know of in uh, human babies where they uh pass the mirror test all of a sudden do we know of that uh there there's a considerable developmental uh, uh literature i've read a very tiny sliver of it um and i was mostly focusing because i was i was categorized as learning disabled and as gifted and so i read a lot of the <laughs> yeah. stuff like piaget and and that stuff on like what these things actually meant um but so i my my knowledge is from the top end and not from the bottom end of of those things so i i would not know i would be really surprised if somebody doesn't know uh and i have seen images from studies with babies with mirrors but for falling so you can take you can take uh not even toddlers like you know like seven eight month people they can crawl and put them on a flat surface that uh uses either clear glass or mirrors or other forced perspective tricks to make it look like there are gaps and and or or stuff floating in space and or you know have their mother entice them and try to get them to go into those circumstances and they will <laughs> they will not do it like they, they, they will they will see down and not see like across and be like oh falling isn't something i want to do just because mommy is over there like you, you know that they'll they'll try to figure out and and like figure out that there is something flat but not be willing to test it in many cases um it's like oh there appears to be some kind of surface in midair that i can move on i don't like my eyes tell me that that's not there i'm not trusting it you know uh i'm feeling as i'm pondering on this subject of 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 size of scale of, of a neural net I, i'm wondering if really there's two things that are I, i'm trying to get at that that this would serve one is at some scale it's too large for us to definitively say it's not you know it's too complex for us to even understand much like our brains the way we understand our brains right now seem to be involving an e you know an eeg and hey that part lit up it's sort of to me like looking at a computer from across the room and hey the light turned on and that's about all we know about how a cpu works um on the other side of it is at some point i feel like you hit some number that like you were saying noah represents something about the scale the number of neurons but also the complexity of each neuron which probably maps to how complex the dna is or, or something i guess what i'm trying to sort out is is there a number at which point we say hey it's it's big enough it represents something that can possibly be conscious and therefore we cannot disprove that it's not conscious and therefore we have to uh, approach it differently we have to treat it with the same rights as a rat or, or a cat um that might be a good subject for a future one. Something, Noah, that you mentioned that, uh, that I have a question on. You said that uh, the thing that has the mo the biggest genome that we know of is a tree. Is that what you said? Um, so plants uh, have this thing that they can do called polyploidy. So we have two copies of our genome, basically. 
um, and if you're familiar with Mendeleev in genetics and dominant and recessive genes, that's sort of why dominant and recessive genes exist. Um, if if you have an extra copy of a chromosome, well, Down syndrome is a very commonly known version of that particular problem. But most extra chromosome things are either very deleterious for the individual that is experiencing them or just fatal, like the, the zygote will not make it past early form replication. Uh, but an enormous number of plants don't care. Uh, and, and there are techniques, modern techniques, but also ancient techniques that essentially take advantage of this and, and effectively genetically mutate the plant um, and a lot of this has happened in germline for thousands of years and plants do it themselves as well. And so there's, there are plants running around with, um, you know, this is, my biology is like 30 years old at this point, but dozens of copies of their chromosomes. Um, so think about like, if you've got two, then you've got dominant and recessive. If you've got like 50, <laughs> how many different interrelationships of interrelationships of computational strands? Um, and in general, uh, polyploidy in plants actually increases their robustness. Um, and so there are these plant genomes that just have enormous things. There's also, I believe there's a bacteria that has like a trillion base pairs. Um, so it's just, it's just out there in a single cell. Um, DNA does not take up a lot of space. Uh, you know, our nucleus is not 99.5% of the cell. It's, it's a little tiny, you know, dot right in there. And we can't even see the chromosomes particularly well, except when they're like pairing up and doubling up for mitosis. Uh, so yeah, computation, I mean, it's powerful. I mean, think about, think about your body, how much of your body mass is your brain? It's, it's not a big number. So, um, 25% yeah, of our energy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> it's where all the food goes, but, yeah, and uh, caffeine. <laughs> but Right. Yeah. Okay. But it doesn't take, it doesn't take a lot of space. It doesn't take a lot of stuff. To, so I, I uh, guess this, the, tying this back to consciousness, like if we look at a plant, some people might say it's not conscious because it doesn't look like me. It doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have, have pain, but we don't, we don't know what it's like to be a tree or a plant. We don't know what it feels like to be that entity. So when we're talking about consciousness and machines, like, is it up to us to to decide what it is, how to define it, if it exists at all. Um, if you guys know, I mean, you know about like the mycelium network in plants, how there's some evidence that plants communicate with each other to decide where to grow and share food through the mycelial network uh, with the funguses and whatnot. Um, we don't know what that's like, but we can start to measure and run experiments and see like these things are communicating. Uh, in many ways, but we just have no insights into what's going on inside the person in in that box, so to speak. So when it comes to uh, AI and stuff, like, is this the first consciousness that's actually being created by another consciousness, uh, or at least what we define as conscious us? Uh, yeah, well, that that ticked over, and also me talking about my thirty-year-old biology. One day in my high school biology class, we went out on a field trip and uh, the object was for everybody to select an object, either a living or a non-living object, um, and, that, and then come back into the class and have the class play 20 questions and determine whether or not the thing you had selected was alive or not alive. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, we were supposed to actually get a sample, like you're supposed to like grab a bug or pick up a rock or whatever. Um, but I, we had to walk through the school's parking lot. And so I asked my teacher, I mean, I can't sample this, but would I be allowed to select a car? Um, and he was like, oh, that's brilliant. 
and I will make sure that you're on the list of, of, of questioning. So we did it and they concluded that a car was alive. And then I let them know that it was a car. And then we, we got into it um, and we concluded that cars have exactly the same status as viruses. They have every trait of living beings except for self-replication and and sort of self-determination. Uh, I mean, some people treat their cars better than others. <laughs> yes, yes. They, and uh, everybody treats their cars and... yes, better than viruses. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this we're already hosting these these bio-adjacent systems and integrating them into our economies. And so I think a lot of this is going to come down to that economic integration and and how we get that. And for me, the point there is that the the current status of winning and losing was a good approximation of of what's going on, but isn't a great approximation of an economy of how to how to get human beings to live with each other. Um, and so from that perspective, I think uh, the spreads are actually self-defeating because wealth comes from people achieving the the sort of requirements in the Maslow hierarchy of need sense of their lives. And so greater wealth requires greater human achievement. Um, and so we, to some extent, uh, as AI can replicate these things that cause human achievement, like being better at trading stocks than us, or being better at spamming <laughs> billions of people online than us or better uh, lovers or yes yes um i saw i saw uh, a couple of pieces last week that uh only fans is apparently being invaded by ai bimbos uh and, oh, and the existing content creators are complaining because the machines can churn out prettier pictures and and uh and dialogue Probably spend more time with people right yes at a vastly greater rate and a vastly it, lower cost you know that <laughs> the right. uh, the latest terminator movie i did not like but it had one line that i thought was excellent um and it was how can the terminator be a good husband and he says arnie says something like well i'm a good listener i was like yeah that could be true as an ai <laughs> you could just listen all day long without the need to to and interject. a lot of people are using uh, even chat gbt today as like sort of i wouldn't say full-blown therapy but something to get feedback on difficult periods in their life you know it's there it's got information i saw somebody i don't know how i would feel about this for myself but it was really interesting somebody said that they used it to say goodbye to their father who had died abruptly and somehow somebody put together a model of the father's writings and stuff and it sort of seemed like their father and they found catharsis that sounds really weird to me but if it's helping somebody that's amazing yeah um or also possibly horrifying um, yeah yeah if, i know i know it, it's... if if that is changing how they would then relate to people generally um i right. i know personally a guy that uh, use ChatGPT in order to uh, create a personalized anniversary card for his wife um, mm -hmm. that had a sonnet with her name in it. Yep. Well, is it much different than going down to the store and buying a sonnet that somebody wrote for uh, <laughs> for the card industry? <laughs> but right, which are probably now written by AI. But you know, I, I wonder if what it's going to come down to is what the morals end up being is probably the way we've handled morals for the last existence of humankind and that's what the masses vote on and what they want uh i would i would 
beg a I'd strong like to, difference with you yeah, on that one. I, I would um, love to argue that one out because, uh, you know, ultimately I, it sure seems like it's whatever the winds push the, the masses to believe. Uh, well, I think I think there's a lot of human pushing that we see down through history. Um, mm-hmm. And and indeed, there are very specific and identifiable individuals that were involved in You'd mentioned the women's rights movement, uh, the anti-slavery movement. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not I, denying I, that. In fact, I think it probably will come from some big individual standing up, making a, a point, and even bringing it up to our politics. Uh, but I guess I'm saying that, you know, believing that, that the AI is a, a living cat and giving it laws is probably, you know, there's going to be a big push against certain groups, probably religious groups is my guess, until they grapple with what this means. And, and there's going to have to be people standing up using logic, using whatever else and making a big point. And then ultimately it's going to be, I think, down to what becomes fad or, or um, common wisdom. Well, yeah, Emmanuel, you had mentioned in the pre-chat spirituality. Uh, do you have any yeah. any thoughts on computational religion? Um, <laughs> no, but that's a fascinating thing. Uh, I've never actually heard those two words put together before. <laughs> First time yeah, here. Yeah, debut right here. Um, no, but that's fascinating. Um, my thoughts on spirituality are more, I guess, in the biological earthly or sort of more hippie realm um which is probably uh, informed my position on consciousness a little bit as well talking about the biological approach um i'm fascinated by things like psychedelics as well what they how they interface with the human mind and stuff like that and i think there's some some link to spirituality in there uh, as well but having uh speaking of religion I would say that it's shaped humanity. I mean, it's it's played such a pivotal role in human history. Um, you look at the three big religions, just the the sheer impact that they've had and continue to have today. The fact that um, you know uh, Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam are still so prevalent in today's society just shows you like the sheer I wouldn't say grip, uh, just power that they have. Uh, you know, and and the value that they bring to people and their families and stuff like that. Um, how do you think they would be affected if, if we decide there's a real AGI? You know, I think our dependence or reliance or our value that we derive from AI or AGI is really going to come down to what it does for us. And this is something that we're just now beginning to talk about and think about. The economy has its own desires and needs as well. And one of the things I'm sort of thinking about a lot is how the economy is going to direct the development of AGI and the design of AGI. Because if AGI is basically designed to maximize GDP, then what does it do for us as individuals? Uh, Yeah, well, I'd pick that up and say that religions, in order to have relevance would have to decide that the person in a box was a soul in the box. And for the big three, that there would be some very different, uh, you know, takes the, that they have different versions of what the ideal life for a soul is supposed to look like. And so whether that soul should be following the, the laws of Moses or the example and laws of Jesus or the example and laws of Muhammad would be what they would have to say. Um, but there, you could also see uh, Hindu Dharma concept um, of whether or not that the computers presumably would be even better than us at detachment and giving up suffering. <laughs> Um, right. you know, imagine, imagine a computer, the computer is the ultimate Buddha that is right. That is, that is living out its Dharma to, to, to escort us to Nirvana by taking on all aspects of our struggle that we cannot, or, um, I'm not a huge knowledgeable person about Shinto, but, um, from what I'm aware, it's an animist sort of sort of faith. And from my knowledge of working with computer programmers, we treat the computers like they are, (laughs) 
free-willed, mischievous spirits most of the time. I think I've um, identified gender to my computer too many times. Right, yeah. People have yelled at me for that. Uh, you know, like, what the hell is it doing? Why? I, I think... Know? It's doing it. I think one of the important things that's going to unfold starting yesterday is this race to AGI is very interesting to me. Who, which company is going to beat everyone else to the punch of whatever we end up collectively defining as AGI? Um, I think that is super pivotal because that's going to set the tone and the direction for whatever comes next, if there even is something next after AGI. Um, The ethics that are baked in from the ground these are going to influence every decision that the agi system makes it's moral philosophy so to speak it's religious foundation to use that terminology it's going to impact all of its decisions you know if you say if you tell the agi you wanted to maximize this metric or do this thing over there it's probably going to go through some morally impacted algorithm that's going to help it make decisions and whoever ends up designing this system are really the people that get to decide what these moral underpinnings are i mean unless we make it open open source and democratic and we vote on these things they're going to be created as we speak behind closed doors and to me that's a big concern the uh, washington post the Washington Post post uh, had an article five days ago that said um, ChatGPT leans liberal, um, and I think we've seen that it also leans libertarian, if I remember right. But I, yeah, I, I saw a, a political map of like all the major LMs, and they're all kind of all over the place. ChatGPT is on the left, and there's a couple others on the right. Some are more authoritarian uh, than others. It's it's pretty interesting, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, that's that's a that's a reflection uh, of of the creators, I think, of of the people actually building these systems because they get to decide the algorithm, but also the data set that it's trained on. And these things all influence that. Yeah, not just that, but actually the, I, I had seen one um, where they were using these things to assess uh, uh, different things. So the, the they, they were, they were actually shifting. So Marty had talked uh, in a previous episode about, um, somebody's been giving ChatGPT IQ tests and the IQ is going down. And we were speculating that it probably had something to do with how much filtering that they were doing on the project so that it wouldn't do things that would get them in trouble uh, or also possibly disagree with. And so I saw I saw maybe the same people you saw that had, had tracked them, but also tracked them over time and tracked them tending to the left and tending towards libertarianism. Um, so that's, that's a, that's another point that the, the people who have their hands dirty are going to get to make a lot of embedded decisions. Yeah. And this goes back to the whole transparency, open source thing and how I think crucial that's going to become each and every day as these things get more capable. I don't think there's any way around it. Otherwise, Without openness, without transparency, we're essentially in a digital dictatorship. I, I, well, as I mentioned on your show when I was there, I have a, a different stance. I think that the the challenge is actually incumbent on us to build institutions that can withstand opaque users, because I personally find humans to be basically opaque and hope that we stay that way. Uh, So we need institutions that are sufficiently transparent and sufficiently aligned with our interests that we can plug huge numbers or super opaque or huge numbers of super opaque users into them and still get the benefits that we need and want. and so that's that's where that's where I come at this, uh, rather than some kind of uh, jackbooted thugs for hippie libertarianism approach, which seems to be. I totally agree uh, with that. The, and the, the current. I, I think one could view AGI as the next big institution in a way, right? It's just one more institution that we're building as we speak, and the need for transparency 
extends not just to AGI, but as you mentioned, all the other institutions that run our society. The more is better, I think. I think one aspect that's missing right now, but I think will come, is that there's one GPT-4. There's not, uh, well, okay, there's one corpus, one big model, and it's served by ChatGPT with its pre-prompts, and it's served by Azure or Microsoft by its pre-prompts, but ultimately its core modeling is the same. So until, unless and until we get a huge corpus of differently trained models and with different beliefs and different um, variations on, on what uh, has been drilled into it, uh, I think we're also going to struggle from not even having a diversity of models. Yeah, if everything's built on GPT-4 or GPT, then yeah, it's that's the foundational layer. Um, I do think, what is it, Meta that released Llama 2, which is purely open source, right? That's, I think, a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. More of that, I think, is excellent. Yeah, I mean, it's still very primitive comparative. I think we're talking, let's see, Llama 2 had, uh, what was it, 8 billion, 13 billion, and 70 billion parameters um, compared to ChatGPT4, uh, GPT which I think was 100 trillion. Okay, big difference there, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty sizable difference. And I played with it a little bit. It was, you could tell it was pretty limited, but it did some interesting things. I noticed it was so way faster. I, I mean, obviously it's a yeah. smaller model, so it's going to be lightning speed, but that speed was nice, like as a contrast. Yeah, yeah. And well, uh, itself is getting faster. Yes, another another thing to, to, you know, realize again from biological systems is that uh, ants and bees and wasps people are very familiar with, but various colony creatures exist uh, where large numbers of, of entities can get together. So for example, slime molds um, do a pretty good job approximating the solution to the efficient transportation problem, which is an NP hard problem that we don't have great solutions for. Um, we, ours are as good as theirs are, uh, but that's, that, that thing doesn't have a brain. It doesn't even have a nervous system. It has a very large number of, of cells that are communicating with each other through chemical signals that are, are effectively just spreading through it by osmosis. So, um, and you talked about plants having similar kinds of behavior. Um, ants, we have a pretty good characterization of sort of the the if-then-else path for what, what an ant does with its life. But that allows them to cooperatively pick up and carry irregularly shaped masses that are dozens of times greater than any one of them can move themselves. Uh, or organize entire leaf mold growing operations or build a colony and then transport that colony to another location and build another colony nest temporarily. Um, or my favorite one, I found out that there are ants that live in salt marshes and they can't make, they can't, they don't breathe underwater. And so as the tide rises, they seal off their underground cavern and stay underwater and then dig the, the connecting tunnels back out. Um, so they, they only have like 10 hours a day of, of, of activity <laughs> and they just follow the, the, the tidal cycle. Yeah. I think I saw something similar with ants able to construct entire, like basically a giant air conditioning by the ways that they um, construct their tunnels. It's it's making me, as we talk about this, it's making me wonder more and more if really the limitation of um, how we ascribe um, morality or, or ability or anything else is going to be a limitation of our understanding of, of whatever it is. Well, that that's one of the things I think that we're, this, it's just a big array of numbers thing can be profitably turned around and say, okay, so what if we train up a large language model on 
the Bible and the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the the you know mystic musings of of respected religious thinkers from fifty different cultures for the last six thousand years, um, and get stories and parables that speak to us and touch us as people and are clearly wisdom what isn't those numbers in that thing this uh, to um, me is another fascinating concept um and i think that it relates to music as well we humans love music um and i think one component of why we love music so much is partly because it came from another human it it was like an expression of emotion there's this weird thing i think we're going through or starting to go through now where music generation tools are coming be, coming online becoming more capable and, and being used uh, to generate songs um i think uh, maybe you guys know correct me if i'm wrong that uh, studies have been done where people have been tested where they listen to a piece and they decide if they like it or not and then afterwards they're told this was generated purely by ai and then uh they're somehow tested again, knowing that it was generated by AI and their likeness of it just drops significantly, knowing just purely from the knowledge that it didn't come from a human being. So I, I just I wonder, like you mentioned, this this biblical scholar type of an AGI system where we can, you know, get wisdom from it. I wonder how much of that plays into knowing that it's from a machine and it's like Another example that comes to mind is, you know, people that have passed away, you know, like the Steve Jobses of the world or, or, you know, philosophers from back in their time, gathering their wisdom and insights and generating like a, a Steve Jobs bot or something that you can query and talk to, knowing that it's not Steve Jobs himself, I think just turns a lot of people off from even wanting to take anything that it outputs with any kind of sincerity or care to some degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it would, and I, I think it should. In most of those cases, I think we generally place too much credence on on our wise people in and of themselves. Um, you know, we, we sort of get somebody that's good in one area and then assume that they're good in other areas as well, and that's frequently not the case. Um, what, what are you saying, like Elon Musk and Twitter? Uh, okay, no, keep going. Uh, you know, there are many, many examples that, that – people can come up with in their heads instantaneously. Um, it, one thing that what you were talking about put me in mind of is, uh, I think it's The Long Dark D Time of the Soul by Douglas Adams. Um, but it might be the other Dirk Gently. No, it's, it's, it's Long Dark Tea Time. Uh, Dirk gently hits upon this, this group of people that have access to mediums and automatic writers. Uh, and they, it's a government program, and they're having them channel uh, Einstein and Pauli and the great physicists of the 20th century. Um, and so they're having these these mediums and automatic writers produce more physics from the great physicists of the 20th century that they can then you know learn and control ahead of everybody else. And so the the mechanism that they're using defies the the meaning of the substance of what they're acquiring <laughs> um but since it works they're not examining it and they don't care <laughs> uh so yeah you get these sorts of contradictory concepts going back to something you said very early on about sort of the ownership and the openness of these things to what extent does open ai own that number array that exists in ChatGPT 4 and to what extent is the training data responsible for the contents of that ownership um, and this is a question that is way too thorny for our existing political discourse but i think is is the only relevant question really um because we have these these devices that can capture 
large parts of what we human beings recognize as our cultural heritage and package them up into into objects that we will consume as objects of our cultural heritage but it's our cultural heritage so it's a little bit like the the land reform of the agrarian period where you're going from a time where nomads have a territorial attachment to land but in many cases uh we don't have interviews with with you know the nomads of six or seven thousand years ago but modern pre-agrarian societies tend to see themselves as belonging to the land um, and and having spiritual attachments to the land and and seeing themselves as sort of the pets of the spirits almost um, and and placating them and serving them much the way that our pets placate and serve us uh, and it's a big shift to go to god emperors or or you know anointed divine right rulers and things like that and the notion of land ownership but cultural cultural demarcation you know you could you could train up a french gpt and a german gpt and a south boston gpt and a you know north island japan gpt if you felt like it um and get distinct sets of numbers that would behave very distinctly differently. And so these these possibilities, I think, are in front of us. I'm still fascinated by, how do you phrase it? Computational spirituality? I think we may need to have a whole- Computational religion. Computational religion, okay. We need to hold, have a whole discussion on that. I think we're out of time on this one. Um, I wanted to thank Emmanuel for joining us for this crazy conversation. I think we're gonna have to have more of, of this topic. I, I'm not sure if we got to any conclusions yet. It runs deep. Um, but I was hoping, could you, yeah, it does. Um, could you uh, remind us of where to find your podcast? Uh, yeah, it's called AI Sentinel. So AI Space Sentinel, and you can find it on YouTube uh, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Awesome. And we're uh, the fourth age uh, and you can find us on Substack and Spotify and Apple. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me.